So, my name's Andy Woodworth, not a very Mennonite name, I know, and then this is the moment you pause for me to say, but my wife is a, a Tyson or a Plett, but I, I can't say that, um, uh, I, don't, I don't have that connection. It's a funny thing, I've been within the EMC for 10 years now, I was a pastor at Heartland in, in Landmark for nine years, and then I've been in this role as conference pastor for a year. And, and the thing I still haven't got used to is the, the, the Mennonite connections. So last Sunday, I was in, in Calgary speaking, and the guy who was facilitating the service, uh, we were talking, and he said, oh, you might know my, my brother-in-law, Brad. And I'm like, and I knew the name, but in my head, this is how it worked, in my head, there's like file folders. So if I'm at your church, I pull that file folder out, and if I see you here, I kind of recognize this is where you're supposed to be, but if I see you somewhere else, it messes up my system. And so this guy's talking about his brother-in-law, and I'm like, I know the name. I can't put a face to it, but I know the name. And he kind of mentioned where he's from. Now, Saturday, I come back, or I come back here. I go Saturday. I'm up at, in Riverton at a, at a men's breakfast, and I get talking to this guy, and all of a sudden I realize this is the guy. <laughs> this is the guy whose brother-in-law is in Calgary who is saying, you might know my brother. And I'm like, this is the, this is the conference. And... Uh, so I'm still getting used to it. Uh, I do work uh, with Emory. If Emory was here, I'd say I work for Emory. Um, you guys all know Emory. We, uh, we were on a trip. He was, he was fairly new. We went, uh, and we were out west. And I had flown in a week early, and I, I was in D.C. and down in Lethbridge. And then, then we met up in, in Calgary, and we drove up to Edmonton. So I've had this vehicle now for a week, this rental vehicle. And you kind of get accustomed to your rental. It becomes yours after a while. And, uh, and this first time we've traveled with Emory, but we had to go from Edmonton up to La Crete and, and then down to Grand Prairie. And it was kind of a long trip. And my wife was with us up to Edmonton. And I said to her, I said, I said if I give these keys to Emory, I'm never getting them back. And Emory was like, you know, he wasn't there at the time when I said it. But he said, you know, if you need help driving out, you know, I'm, I'm happy to drive. So, I, so that morning we get up and he said, you know, uh, you know you've been driving for a week. Do you want me to, want me to take this leg? And I'm like, Sure. You can take this leg. Four days later, I get the keys back to drive from the hotel to the airport to drop the car off. And uh, so, not saying that's anything to do with his personality, but uh, it gave me some extra time. And not only that, they, they wanted, I shouldn't say this because I had to sit in the back seat because one of the people, one of the people that we were with said she gets car sick. So she got the front seat. So I'm in the back seat and I'm like, we gotta, we gotta do something about this. But, but uh, it was got some work done. Um, so it's good to be here this morning and be with you guys. It's nice when you don't have to travel too far. Andrew contacted me a, a while ago and, and mentioned the date, and I just kind of looked at my calendar and said, "Oh yeah, that Sunday's open and plugged in." After I got off the with the with them, I went, "Oh, that's a that's a long weekend." But our kids are all grown up, so it doesn't doesn't matter as much. But then I get an email from Andrew this week. Uh, oh, yeah, by the way, I won't be there on Sunday. And I'm like, oh, that's well played. That's well, well played. But uh, it's good to be filling in. So I don't know if I'm filling in as the conference pastor or if I'm filling in as a speaker. doesn't matter because this topic's going to be the same. We're going to look at this uh, uh, at, at looking beyond our limitations. And I, and I kind of worked on this. This is a bit of the story of my life, because when I started, and, and 
and they asked me where I want to speak, and I said, oh, definitely up, up there, because pulpits intimidate me a lot. Because I started when I was 22, we had a great big pulpit, and I was terrified behind this pulpit. And uh, would, would just be panicked, because I thought everybody who stands behind the pulpit is perfect. And I'm going, I don't know anything. I don't feel adequate. So I was always intimidated by pulpits. So I always got, like, when I had my own chair, I got rid of the pulpit because it was just intimidating me. So I triggered as soon as I came in. It's like, do you want to speak there? And I'm like, oh, that's a pulpit. I don't want to. <laughs> but, uh, but we made the quick change. But I, I often said in my ministry, I said, you know, I'm looking forward to the day when I know what I'm doing, where I feel confident enough that I got a handle on this. And, and I'm still waiting for that day. And so we've been 35 years in ministry, and, uh, and, and this is still something I look, is how do we work beyond the limitations that we put on ourselves? So a number of years ago, I, I picked up a book by Stephen Covey, and it's, it's not the one you're thinking of. I have that book, Seven Habits. Uh, it's been on my shelf for, for exactly 35 years, and I still haven't read it. I was supposed to read it for my credentialing, I didn't say I read it, I said I had it, and, uh, and one day I would get to it. But there's another book by Stephen Covey called The Leader in Me, and this one I absorbed. And this one, The Leader in Me, is, is a book that was written uh, about, about working with children and helping children develop in their early years to be leaders, to, to have a, a degree of confidence in them. And, and it was... Um, it was a compelling book, mainly because of this one quote that I read. And the quote that I read was this, Leadership is communicating people's worth and potential so clearly that they are inspired to see it in themselves. Of course, when he wrote this, he was writing about kids. But when I read that, I went, that really applies to every area of life. And it's a challenge for leaders to go, how do we help people see the potential that, that they have within themselves to such a degree that they can actually see it in themselves. Because one of the biggest challenges that we have is seeing what we can do for God and seeing that we have uh, gifts and abilities that God could use for his kingdom. Because that's a, that's a pretty overwhelming sense. But when somebody speaks to our hearts, like when somebody really speaks about who you are, something jumps inside of you. When, when you recognize somebody voices to you what they see in you and it's, it resonates as, as being at the core of who you are, it does something to you. It excites you. So if you do that with kids, you, you see kids gravitate towards that. You see them get excited about that. And if you do it with the adults, you see that same reaction. Because often what is in us we, we're intimidated by that, and we're almost fearful of that, and, and we, we, we kind of suppress it. But then you get into, like, Ephesians chapter 2, and, and look at these words of Ephesians, what Paul writes, and think about this for a moment. You are his workmanship, and you are created in Christ Jesus. But catch this part. For Good works, which God himself, I added that part, prepared beforehand, that you should walk in them. 
And, it, and if you stop and you think about that, he's not saying that certain people are created this way. He's saying everybody's created this way, that you're created this way, that you're created with, with gifts and abilities that, that God knew and intentionally created you the way you are because he knew that there were things for you to do in your life, not one day, but every day. And when you stop and you let that sink in, that's a, that's a, that's a pretty powerful statement. And it's an intimidating statement. And it's easy to say that, okay, now just go do what you're supposed to do. Go do what you've been created to do. And that's somewhat easier said than done because sometimes things just seem too big for us. I mean, I, I, I've spent all my years feeling like it's too much. Like I'm not adequate, that I'm not prepared, that I don't know enough, that I'm not smart enough, that I'm not strong enough for whatever it is that I'm doing. And sometimes it's hard for us to see beyond our inabilities to be able to actually see our capabilities. Because our inabilities and our weaknesses seem to stand out and our capabilities get lost in the mix. And within the church, I think, at least my perspective is, that, that we struggle with it more because we put the God component into it. So now we're intimidated that we're going to let God down. So if, if I go to do something and it doesn't work, I'm going to let the church down. And, and so that, that fear of, of not being able to measure up or that fear of, of, of underperforming or that fear of failure causes a lot of us Christians to go better safe than sorry. It's better to play it safe than to take a risk. And, and sometimes within church, we haven't been really good to, to communicate that there's some leeway there. That if you do step out in faith and you do something and you fall flat on your face, that, that that's not failure, that, that we'll pick you up and, and we'll keep going. That, that, that we give a little tolerance to, to mistakes and to shortcomings. And that we become the church that encourages and not the, a church that discourages people stepping out. But the better safe than sorry motto isn't always the best. Now, in, in the course of my career, there's over 35 years, there's been a few times where I, I popped out of ministry to do something else, usually just to get my head on straight and get back into it. And, and there was times... Uh, so during those times, I, I was an air traffic controller for a few years, and uh, in the interview, they said, why, why would you leave pastoring to become an air traffic controller? And I, and I looked across the table, I said, I want a less stressful job. And, <laughs> and they laughed, and in my head, I'm going, no, no, I'm serious. Like, it's Because an air traffic controller, you, you look out and you see a problem, and you say, I, I recommend that you make a left turn to a heading 270, and the pilot goes affirmative, making a left turn now to heading 270. You're in a church, and you see somebody on a collision course, and you say, I think you should do this, and they go, no, I think I got it, and uh, so a little different, but I was also, uh, I worked with foster care for a number of years as a kind of a, a program supervisor for an organization, uh, and then there were times when I worked part-time jobs as a church planter, and so I was a, I got, I was a produce clerk, that was fun, I learned all about the food, uh, I was a delivery driver for a newspaper, that was, that wasn't fun, but it was a job. And, uh, but one of the jobs I had was 
I worked with in corrections. And I was, the title was a youth counselor for uh, an open custody facility. That meant uh, it was kind of like a halfway house. It was a, still jail, but it wasn't jail, jail. Like you had big jail, and then you had us, and then you got out. Um, and, and one day in that job, uh, one of our client came in, uh, a guy named Carl. And Carl was this scrawny little kid, uh, very underweight, uh, first-time offense, first, well, first, not necessarily first offense, first one he got caught and, and charged with. And he ended up in, in open custody with the charge of armed robbery. Now, if, if you work in the, in the business, you go, armed robbery isn't an open custody. Armed robbery is big jail. Like, if, if you're, so I knew there was more to his file, so I, I read his far, file. And armed robbery, is, it's a serious offense. So they're not normally in open custody. So I read his file, and his file was this. That Carl went into his convenience store that was near his house uh, with a gun. But the gun he had was a BB gun, which is treated under the law as if you have a firearm. It's because it has to do with intent, and it's kind of the whole thing. Now, the problem with Carl going into the grocery store with a BB gun instead of a real gun is the clerk recognized that it was a BB gun. At which point, he pulled out a baseball bat that he had under the, under the counter and proceeded to chase Carl out of the store. Carl ran out of the store and within that day was apprehended, was put in custody, was charged and was sentenced and shows up at our place with a two-year term. Now, jail, even in juvenile detention facilities, has a weird culture with it. It's not, not a healthy place. So there's a pecking order. And so any new guy comes in, they're going to be intimidated because they gotta, the guys that are there are going to kind of exert some, some power and authority. And so Carl comes in as a scrawny kid, first offense or first, first conviction. And, and he's so nervous that he's developed this, this spasm in his neck from, from the stress. And so every once in a while, his head would just twitch, and uh, to which he gets the nickname Twitch. Um, but I was, I, and the funny thing, I had read this book, the Stephen Covey book, and I went, okay, this is, this is what I'm going to do. So I never called him Twitch. I always called him Carl. And, uh, and, and I always referred to him as that. And, and even when he grew to accept the name, I still only called him Carl. Now, we had a, the, the facility was set up. It was, sleeping was upstairs. The main area was on the main floor. And then in the basement, there was this rec room. And in the rec room, there was ping-pong, and some other things. And, and residents could go downstairs to the rec room as long as a staff was down there. So every time I came on shift, Carl would say, can we go down and play ping-pong? And I was always like, oh, I don't want to go down there because i got work to do. And, but I, I, I knew that what he was asking was not, I want to go play ping-pong. It's, I don't want to be here. And... Um, so I would go down with him, and sometimes some other guys would come down and do some other things, but, but we would go down. And he always wanted to play ping pong. And I used to play ping pong in college. Like, ping pong is a competitive sport. <laughs> but Carl was terrible. I mean, I mean he, was, he was terrible. You, you didn't beat Carl. Carl lost the game completely on his own. Uh, I tried to kind of give him, you know, kind of fake it like you would with a, a kid. Like, and, and then he would get mad because he would recognize nobody wants mercy points. 
So I'm like, what, what am I going to do with this guy? Because this is just brutal. Like, it's just, it, it's, 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 I, I feel bad for him because he, he loses every game. And he, you know, you can see that, like, his shoulders are down, everything about him. And so I devised a plan. I said, well, in order to make this good, I've got to do something different. So I went, I'm going to start playing with my left hand. Never played ping pong with my left hand before. But I'm like, I'm going to play ping pong with my left hand. And it went about as good as you think it would go. But it was good enough to beat Carl. And, uh, but it was close. He got some legitimate points. So we, we kept playing, and I kept playing with my left hand, and he kept getting better, and I kept getting better with my left hand. Well, then, then it happened. It's this one day. I remember the day because Carl won. He won three games out of five. I mean, he legitimately won. I was playing the best I could with my left hand, but he beat me. Now, you think he had just won the Grand Slam of tennis. I mean, he is jumping around the room. He immediately runs out. He throws his paddle down. He runs upstairs. He's bragging to all his buddies that he's just beat me. All right? This is a, this is a monumental moment. We sit down for supper. He's... He's trash-talking all through supper. And I'm sitting there going, oh. But it's like, good for him. Because when I looked at him, I went, one, the twitch is gone. Two, he had had a bit of a growth spurt, so he was a little bit bigger. He had grown like six inches. He had put on some healthy weight. But he had some confidence. And, and I looked, and I, and I recognized that sometimes the best counseling that we do is we, we can do it in such a way that they don't even know we're working with them. And he had developed some things that were good, some qualities that were good. And it was okay to lose to him and to put up with all the trash talk because I saw the change in him. And the thing that I came to realize is everybody wants to know who they are. But more importantly, everybody wants to know why we are. Like, what's our purpose in life? Why, why are we the way we are? And, and is the way that you're designed good, or is the way that you're designed bad? And we're all struggling with those things. So sometimes we come in, especially with, the, with, with Christ, we come in feeling, feeling small and insignificant. I mean, we come to Christ confessing our sins, confessing all the things that we've done wrong, recognizing that we've fallen short of the glory of God. And we receive Christ. But then instead of being bolstered by Christ in us, the Spirit in us, oftentimes Christians struggle with their identity. Because we look around in the church and we see saints. But we seldom put ourselves in the category of being a saint. And in a lot of ways, we're much more comfortable referring to ourselves as sinners by our deficiencies. And sometimes that's where we get stuck, is we're constantly looking at ourselves as where we've fallen short and what we're not in the kingdom of God. And we keep raising the bar on ourselves in terms of what we need to do, that we always feel less than. So we go to Ephesians 4. And Paul writes this, we are to grow up in every way into who is, who is the head, into Christ. 
So we talk about acting in a Christ-like manner. We talk about having the mind of Christ. And sometimes we need to be reminded of the fact that He created us. That He designed us. That He equipped us for the good works that He had prepared in advance for us to do. Sometimes we have to remind ourselves that the Lord wants us to grow up into Him. To to grow beyond our deficiencies and to, to begin to see our potential in Him. Now, I love this story. You probably remember the story of Jesus calming the storm. Um, the, the, the one where he's asleep, that, that story, which I always, I always find somewhat humorous. Because one, I'm thinking Jesus is not really sleeping. He's faking. He's got to be faking. Nobody sleeps. If you've ever been at sea in, in rough storm, you don't, you don't sleep through that. And, and these disciples are in there, and they, they wake Jesus up. You remember how the story goes? You wake Jesus up, Jesus gets up, kind of pretends he's waking up, you know. That's my theory. And, and he speaks the words, peace be still, and it says immediately, the, the, it, it not only stopped, but it became calm. And it uses the word, there was a, a great calm. So it's just like crystal clear. And that story is recorded in Mark 4, and it's a great story. But, but sometimes we miss what's happening, kind of the bigger picture. And so the bigger picture is this, and we'll just go back. You don't have to turn to this, but I'll give you kind of a synopsis of Mark chapter 1. And if you have a Bible that has headings in it, you probably have a heading that says something in Mark chapter 1, uh, Jesus calls the first disciples, okay? And then you, go to, you turn the page, you go to Mark chapter 2, and there'll be a heading that says Jesus calls Levi or, or Matthew. And, and then you go to Mark chapter 3, and it's the, the 12 apostles, and that's where Jesus officially appoints them. And it says in, in Mark 3, verse 14, that he, Jesus, appointed 12 so that they might, and catch this, be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. So what it says is that, that Jesus pulls in these, these 12, these select 12, and he equips them. He equips them to go out and speak what he was speaking, to go out and act like he was acting, to go out and do the things that he was doing. And he intentionally pulls them together so that they will do that. So then you get to the story of the storm. So you've got these delegated 12, right? And they're in this boat, and Jesus is sleeping. And this storm comes up. So they wake him up, and he calms the storm by rebuking it, and he rebukes it almost in the same fashion as he rebukes demons, which tells you a little bit the origin of the storm. And everything calms down, and Jesus turns to the delegated 12, and he says something very simple to them. He says this in, in verse 40, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Now, that word afraid is, is the Greek word dilos. And dilos means can be afraid, but it also means to be timid. So he's saying, why are you so timid about rising up into the, the fullness of what I've said that you are? Why are you so hesitant to, to, to say the things that I say that you can say, 
to do the things that I say you can do, to operate with the authority that I say that you can operate with? Why are you so intimidated by that? Why are you so timid about that? Have you still no faith? Or have you still no conviction? And, and here's the piece. Not the conviction that Jesus is, is doing these wonderful things, but the conviction that what he says about them is actually true. Why is it that you're so timid to rise up and be the delegated disciples that I said that you are, that I've laid hands on you and appointed you to be? Why are you so reluctant to do the things that you could do? But the piece that's really important is what comes a couple of verses before that to really understand the context. Because these guys don't say, Jesus, I think we have a problem. What do you think we should do in this? Or, or, or Jesus, uh, we're, we're thinking we should do this, but we'd like some guidance in this. Like, we've never done a storm before. Can you just, can you just be with us? They, they don't say that. Look at what they say. Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And you let that sink in because then we go, oh, those disciples, I'm going to... We all admit, we, we've done this. That we think Jesus not acting on our behalf is an indication that he doesn't care. But the commission was, I want you to do some things. I want you to do these things. And, and, and we think if Jesus doesn't step in, then he doesn't care. But maybe Jesus is sitting back going, I, 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 it's in you. And the best lesson is for me not to intervene, but for you to, to see and trust and believe that there's things that I've placed in you for you to do. And, and if you just try it, you're going to see what happens. And then we're going to be able to celebrate. That you're, you're not going to give up. That you're going to press in. The fact was that Jesus saw in them more than what they saw in themselves. So that was a lesson. And, and then you jump ahead a couple of chapters, Matthew chapter 6. So you think, okay, that was, that was rough. That was a tough lesson. They got some time to absorb that, to think about it, to debrief, and then they kind of go on their way. Jesus has a way of circling back. If he, if he teaches something and you didn't quite get it, he tends to bring you back to it and, and kind of give you a different scenario, and, and, and he does in Mark chapter 6. And it says that title or that heading would be something like Jesus sends out the 12. And these disciples go out and he says, all right, I'm going to make it a little challenging. I don't want you to take a bag. I don't want you to take provisions. I want you just to go where you're supposed to go. Don't worry about what you know about that place. Just go. And I want you to preach. And I want you to heal. And I want you to cast out demons. I don't know how confident they were heading out. But they went out. And it says, they did the things, and to their surprise, when they preached, people responded. When they laid hands on people, they were healed. When they spoke to demons, they were cast out. And it says that those 12 come back going, Jesus, you won't believe this. It worked. And every one of them, there wasn't any exception. All of them went out and said, it, it worked. 
we were able to do the things that you said we could do. And they come back celebrating in this moment. Because they were able to witness that, that they could trust Jesus and, and his words to be their provider, to be their equipper, to be their protector, and to be their guide. And all they had to do was follow his words and go and do what he says they could do, and things happen. And then Jesus challenges them again, because lessons hasn't been learned yet completely. So let's, let's, let's ramp this up. And he brings them together, and there's this massive crowd. And Jesus is teaching to them, and he's, he's doing this wonderful job. And it comes to the end of the day, and the disciples say, probably should send them home, like getting late, getting hungry. He should, you know, they should go home and get something to eat. And Jesus does this. He goes, and, and, and I picture how he said it, but you can picture it however you want. He looks at them and he says, uh, why don't you guys look after it? And, and I'd be thinking, oh, you want us to dismiss them? And it's like, no, I want you to feed them. And immediately, what do they do? I mean, Jesus is saying, you can do it. I believe in you because I'm asking you to do it. They immediately looked at themselves and, and, and looked at what they had and went, we're not capable. We can't do that. And they turn to Jesus and they say, we can't. Not only do they believe they can't, they don't even try. So Jesus proceeds to feed the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. And he makes a little subtle point because he makes sure there's enough leftovers for 12 full baskets. So each of those disciples who said, I, I, we, we, we can't, that, that, that's impossible. They get to take this basket home going, oh, maybe. Maybe it is possible. And, and, and Jesus has this patience to keep working with them. But every time that they get to a point where, where they go, oh, I, I think we got this, he goes, well, let's, let's, let's try the next step. Let's, let's do this. And you see that throughout the Gospels. So back to Carl. After his epic victory, I gave, gave him a couple of days. I didn't work there all the time. I was only in a couple of days a week. And uh, so when I came back in, Tuesday, I, I walked in, I signed in, and he's at the, at, at the window looking at me. And I'm like, just give me a second just to read the log and find out what's going on here. And uh, he's like, can we go down and play ping pong? And I'm like, sure, Carl, we'll go down and play ping pong. And then he starts trash talking all the way downstairs. He's trash talking all the way. And we get down there, and, and, and we rally. And I'm still using my left hand. We rally. And he wins a rally. He wins it pretty confidently. So he's all excited. He's got that. And I said, just, Carl, just a second. I take that paddle, and I go, just, and I switch hands. And, and, and I go, now let's see what you got. And he looked at me with this, like, this shocked look on his face. And I could see him kind of go, kind of the shoulders drop a little bit. And I said, no, I think, I think you're ready now. And we proceeded to play, and I beat him. I beat him well. Like, I had to teach him a little bit of a lesson. Just bring him down a notch. But it was close for a while, and, and we continued to play, 
And we continue to, to and, and towards the end of his, his term there, it was, he was pretty good. And, and he could win, and he did win a few, few games. I, I always made sure I was up, but, but I had to work for it. And I knew I had to work for it. But he knew that I wasn't giving him any ground. And he had developed this, this, this confidence to be able to do more after, after that long process than what he could ever do before. So he got out, and he was released, and, and he, he moved to B.C., I was in Ontario at the time. He moved to BC and he got a job. And I, and I almost always worked like Sunday nights. Uh, I, I would do an overnight there every couple of weeks. And he would always call on a Sunday night. And, uh, and sometimes he'd call just to, just to check in. And I, I always ask the same thing. Carl, are you, are you staying out of trouble? And he'd kind of laugh, you know, kind of like, well, yeah, sort of, you know. But then he'd say, but, but I'm not doing any drugs and I still got my job. And I said, well, that's good, Carl. You keep doing that. And, uh, and, and we just kind of banter back and forth, and, and he, he could be a little annoying at times, but, uh, but it was good. It was a good investment. Because I realized that sometimes he just needed to call just to say, I can do this, right? And be like, yeah, you can do it. Just, just, just keep working on it. And sometimes that's what we need to know is, is it's going to be okay. Now, within church, within the very kingdom of God, we look at ourselves and we say, do we fit in? Do we have a place? What's my role? What's my purpose? What's my responsibility? What am I designed for? What am I equipped for? What am I really passionate about? And, and, and these are big questions to ask. And, and in some ways, you'll spend a lifetime trying to figure those out, and that's, that's good. But it's a journey worth taking. It, it, it's really a treasure worth digging for. Because the Lord will keep surprising you about those things that are in you to do for His glory. So if we were to switch to, to Romans 12, Paul's still writing here. This is probably one of my go-to passages. I appeal to you, brothers, therefore brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Sometimes we think it all depends on me or my abilities or my willingness or my sacrifice, and, and, and we've got to get past that, that it's, it's not dependent on you, but you're, a, you're an instrument that God uses within this. The reality is that, that what the Lord wants you to do more than anything else is just to live for him to make your life available to him. And as you make your life available to the Lord, the Lord is able to take you and equip you and use you and prepare you and bring you into situations where you are a voice or the hands or the feet for that moment. To have an impact that is probably bigger than what you can imagine. That your spiritual worship, he says, is, is just to live a life that says, Lord, I, I, my life is yours. So in verse 2, he goes on to say, kind of in, in light of this then, don't be conformed to the world or to this age, to what you feel about yourself in the moment, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can test the things that the Lord is doing, so you can understand them, so that you can, can interact and you can see the bigger picture of what's, what's happening there. 
that, that working for the Lord is not just a task that you do to earn God's favor, but it, it's, it's put yourself in a place where the Lord can use you. And you can watch lives be impacted through the words that you say and the actions that you take at the prompting of the Holy Spirit that will transform other people's lives in ways that you could never have done on your own. And, and the most exciting thing and gratifying thing and humbling thing that can happen is, is you will speak a word that you feel like the Lord laid on your heart for somebody and you will see them react to that. Or you pray for somebody in such a way that you see them physically react to that because all of a sudden you realize that those words have gone right to their heart. And it's the most gratifying thing, but also the most humbling thing because you go, that was the Lord working through, not me doing what I think I ought to do. And that's a, that's a powerful thing. So it's really about knowing this and being convinced that you are more capable of serving the Lord, living out His Word, and being used by Him than what you realize. In many ways, we we feel like we're ill-equipped. Because the enemy has a way of highlighting all of our deficiencies. But the reality is that you're created with gifts and abilities that the Lord knows about for good works that he's prepared in advance for you to do. And as that transformation takes place, not of of you becoming better, but of of you changing that, that focus to trusting the Lord explicitly, then he's able to, to activate those things that are in you. He's able to take those gifts and abilities and bring them to life so that they can be used in the moment. So Romans 12, 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to you, everyone among you, not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think it with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So we're not out to impress God. The reality is we're out, and this is, this is the driving thing, we're out to be impressed by God. Because as we sense what the Lord is leading, we step into that, like those disciples that went out, and we see God work through that, it gives us a whole new perspective on how God works and what God does. And we sometimes think that we've got to go out and do good work so that God's impressed by, by what we're doing, by our sacrifice, by our willingness and commitment. But what we want to do is get in that place like a child where we're, we're anticipating what God's going to do in the moment. That if you say yes, what will happen? And what will God do? And then the transformation starts little by little by little by little. Just like Carl, he didn't even recognize that he was becoming better, but he was getting better and better and better. And somebody who knew was watching and looking and going, this kid's getting better, he's getting better, this is working. And that's the way the Lord looks at us. He looks and says, oh, yeah, you, you messed up on that one, but, but you did a whole lot better than last time. And, and yeah, you didn't quite get it there, but, but you know, two more times you're going to fail, but then the third time you're going to succeed. So we're, we're one step closer to this, this thing really cracking open. And, and we want to persevere and, and stay the course and let, let ourselves be, be impressed and be, 
marvel at what God does in us. So that quote by Stephen Covey is really a reflection of what Jesus and his Spirit does in us. That leadership of of the Lord and of the Spirit is communicating people's worth and potential so clearly that they are inspired to see it in themselves. So we don't go it alone. We don't have to strive to be good enough. We have to put ourselves in a place where we want to honor the Lord by being obedient to what His Spirit leads us to do. Even when we think it exceeds our limitations. To take that step of faith to go one step further, one step beyond what we're comfortable with and see what the Lord does in those moments. You see, we're designed by God to live and serve beyond our limitations. That's, that's the design of God. He's always taking us a little further. And that's the excitement that comes in following Christ. That it's not the same old, same old every day. It's something new and refreshing every single day as we're willing to stay in step with Him. Because we're designed to live by a calling and not by a law. We're called to, to live by the voice of the Lord and not by, by an ancient prescription. And it all starts with a simple yes. It starts with, yes, Lord, I'll accept you as Lord and my Savior. Yes, Lord, I'll accept you in my life and I want it to be a living sacrifice to you. Yes, Lord, I want to know your will. And yes, Lord, I want to walk in your will. Yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. And every time you say yes, without you even being aware, you're stepping more and more and more in line with his, his plan for your life. And before you realize it, you're doing things that years ago you didn't think you were capable of doing. And you're overcoming things that years ago you didn't think you would ever overcome. And you're beginning to minister to people in ways that years ago you never thought you would ever be able to do. But the Lord takes you step by step by step through the yeses that you have. And just by playing the game, you'll exceed the limits that you start with. So, the question is, are you willing to say yes to the Lord? In the beginning phase of accepting Him into your life, of the ongoing stage of, yes, I want my life to be a living sacrifice, in that ongoing and that push where it's like, yes, Lord, even if it exceeds what I think I can do, I'm willing to say yes and see what the Lord does in your life. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that, that like those disciples, you're, you're so patient with us. That, Lord, every failure that we have is not counted as an end point, but it's, a, it's an opportunity to teach us something new. So, Lord, may we, even in our failures, even in our shortcomings, even in our, even in our disobedience, be willing to change and turn course and repent and say yes to you. And, Lord, I pray this that for the people of Stony Brook, that, that they will get challenged to go beyond their own limitations and that they would see your grace and your mercies and your workings exceed what their expectations are even today. And Lord, may you be glorified through their words and through their actions, through their givings, through their sacrifices. And Lord, may they see those things and may they see in themselves the greater potential that you see in them. And so, Lord, may we glorify you with our lives, with our words, with our actions, 
and Lord, with our prayers. And we give you all the praise and all the thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.